0: Welcome to the latest installment of What in the World Did We Just Read? Uh, <laughs> so, we've been spending this entire semester uh, wading into the, the murky waters of the book of Revelation. And actually, I think we have been finding beautiful surprises there each and every week that are actually so incredibly relevant and helpful for the church today. So, by way of reminder, the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic letter. Apocalypse, which is the Greek name of this book, Actually means to uncover, and so the purpose of this book is to kind of pull back the curtain of heaven, to uncover, to reveal God's perspective on the things that are happening on Earth in the present. That's what we're uncovering. It's a letter written to seven churches in first-century Asia, and through them to the fullness of the church in all times and in all places. So it's written to us. And each of these seven churches are addressed directly in chapters two and three, and we're making our way through these uh, individual letters. So today we come to the next to the last one. This is the letter to the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. So what does Jesus want to reveal to the church in Philadelphia? What does he want to reveal through them to us? Well, Brothers and sisters, I think the message of this letter is this. In this world, you will be shut out and shaken. But in Christ, you will be steadfast and awakened to hope. I was actually kind of proud of that one. In this world, you will be shut out and shaken, but in Christ, you will be steadfast and awakened to hope. So first of all, in this world, you will be shut out and shaken. What do I mean by that? Well, in ancient Philadelphia, was not unlike our own world in that there are certain people who, hold, who, hold the, who are the keeper of the keys to certain doors of society. And though I'm not talking about Rubius Hagrid, the keeper of keys and grounds at Hogwarts School. I know you're thinking it. I am talking about those who have power to open or close certain doors for you. They could be social doors into certain echelons of society. They could be professional doors into certain jobs or certain associations. They could be just culturally acceptable doors into a protected, into a comfortable way of life. Because I I know we all know what this is like, right? There are are certain names that open certain doors for us. And the name is the key. If you know the right names, then the right doors can be opened up for you. This is why we're all running this rat race called networking and name-dropping. Networking and name-dropping. Because we know the right name opens the right doors. See, the problem, though, in Philadelphia and in the six other churches and even today... Is that the name of Christ did not open doors it shut them to profess the name of Christ was to run the risk of being shut out of your city being shut out of certain social circles as we're discovering in these first century contexts, people couldn't just go along with the others to the feasts at the pagan temples. They ran the risk of being shut out of professional circles. They could not in good conscience make a sacrifice to the pagan deity of their professional guild. They're being shut out of just cultural acceptability because they could not say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord at the same time. See, to be a Christian in Philadelphia meant being shut out, being treated as an outsider, maybe even persecuted for being different, being viewed as a threat. To be a Christian meant living in this tension between commitment and compromise. Because to deny the name of Christ would actually open certain doors that would make life so much easier. And we can relate, can't we? We live in that same tension today. And I want to be careful as we talk about this. Because I want to be careful about this us versus them language with this church versus the world mentality. Because there's a whole lot of baggage associated with that. The whole lot of baggage of the Christian culture wars with this kind of language. And I'm, I'm going to talk about it later, but what I'm not talking about is trying to take back some sort of cultural power or asserting some sort of Christian dominance. It's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about the language the Bible uses to describe the Christian church that has been the norm throughout history and is actually becoming more and more the norm again today. And that is the language of being exiles being outsiders, being sufferers and sojourners. Those whose primary citizenship is in heaven. Those who have no lasting city on earth, but who seek the city that is to come. This means that the experience as a Christian is always gonna mean at some level you don't feel at home here. Because we're not home yet. We do not feel at home in this world and a commitment to the name of Christ will cause us to be shut out of certain things. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe it's from being shut out from being, seri- being considered a serious academic. If you acknowledge a creator in certain scientific fields. Maybe it's from the camaraderie of the office. If you refuse to cut the same ethical corners like everyone else does. I don't know, maybe it's just from the expected norms when your kids skip the travel team game because it conflicts with church. Guilty. Because in this world, this letter is telling us you will be shut out by the name of Christ. But it is especially complicated because you're also being shut out by other religious people. This is where this letter gets interesting. So the Philadelphians were already being shut out by by pagans, but in this passage, they're especially being shut out by the Jews. See, it appears that what's going on is that the Jewish community had thrown the Christians out of the synagogue and shut them out of their house of worship. And that's why Jesus comes with these strong words in verse 9 where he calls them the synagogue of Satan. He says, You're Jews, but you're not. You're liars. So I want to say again, this is not, in any way, anti-Jewish rhetoric. And it's especially not aimed at them because of their ethnicity. Remember, Jesus himself is a Jew who is speaking here. So what is going on? Well, we have to remember the core of the issue in, in first century. You've got to remember, the first century Christians did not claim a new religion at all. What they claimed was the fulfillment of the Jewish religion in Jesus, The Messiah therefore, it was common in the beginning for Christians to worship with Jewish synagogues, where they would reason together whether or not Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Read the book of Acts. This is the strategy of the Apostle Paul. As he would go out first, he would go into the synagogue. And only if his message was rejected there, but then he would go out to the Gentiles and into the public square. And then he would go out and create and plant new churches, Christian churches. Some synagogues did believe this message early on. Some of the earliest Christians were Jewish. But apparently that's not what happened in Philadelphia. The synagogue there did not believe the message, and they eventually got to the point where they threw the Christians out and they shut the door on them. You see, this is the tension in this passage. These are religions that share the same foundation in the Old Testament, and therefore the debate was, who are the true people of God? Who are the true heirs of the promises of God? What is the true house of worship? But the synagogue in Philadelphia did not receive such harsh words just for shutting out Christians. It's also because of what they did after that. You see, until the last part of the first century, Christianity was kind of protected under the umbrella of Judaism culturally. Because most people thought it was just a new sect of Judaism. So in context throughout the whole Roman Empire there was major populations of Jews who were treated as an acceptable religion. Were given certain rights which were then extended to Christians. But as these tensions increased between Jews and Christians there were some leaders of synagogues, some Jewish leaders who were all too eager to let the local Roman authorities know that Christians were no Jewish sect at all. They're a new thing. They're a threatening religion that should not be afforded the same protections. Some Jews used their significant social and political capital and even lied, even slandered Christians, knowing that it would raise suspicions about them and subject them to scrutiny or even persecution from the Romans. See, that's why Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. Because they were bringing false accusations against against Christians, which is Satan's favorite pastime. Because Satan is a liar. Revelation twelve ten says that Satan falsely accuses brothers and sisters in Christ day and night, and so when the Jews in Philadelphia were doing the same, they were playing the part of Satan. That's what the letter says. So you, you get the feeling, right? The Christians in Philadelphia were being shut out of society by non-believers, but also shut out of the synagogue by believers. The Jews were also the keeper of the keys. They were deciding who's in and who's out. They opened and they shut the door as they saw fit. But all this makes makes me wonder about our experience today. How do we translate this into our experience today? Because it's one thing as a Christian to be shut out by nine Christians, we might expect that. It's another thing to be shut out by a different religion, we might also expect that. But it's another thing to be shut out by fellow Christians. By brothers and sisters who are supposed to be one in Christ. Now this is all the more disorienting. Because I'm, I'm not talking about being disciplined or being even excommunicated over a sin issue. I'm talking about being shut out over something other than Christ. Over politics. Over pandemic policies. Or just because you want to talk about racism. Or the church's history of abuse because some of you know this pain all too well. It makes me wonder, who are the doorkeepers today? Who are the keepers of the keys who decide who's in and who's out? Who's faithful and who's not? Who opens and shuts the door? Is it celebrity pastors through their social media outlets? Is it discernment bloggers? Is it our favorite 24-7 news network? Right, who are the doorkeepers? Who is deciding what Christian faithfulness looks like today? It seems to me that the tribalism in the Christian church is the new keeper of the keys. And you can have the door shut on you just because you don't align with their tribe. You see, in this world, you will be shut out for the name of Christ by the world and even by the church. And the whole experience can be so incredibly disorienting. Can leave you shaken. You see, ancient Philadelphia was almost fam- was famous for another thing, and that is, they were famous for earthquakes. It was like the San Francisco of our day. And they had a major earthquake maybe 50 years before the writing of this letter, and the city was destroyed, it had to be rebuilt by grants from the emperor. And I think that's significant because being a Christian in Philadelphia almost felt like living in an earthquake. Everything you thought was solid and secure is now swaying or buckling or breaking. You don't know what's going to fall next. You feel shaken to your core. But, sisters, maybe that's what the last couple of years have felt like for you. Like you're living in an earthquake. Like your faith has been shaken. Like the doors you thought were going to be open have closed. Like the foundations you thought were solid are crumbling. Like you have no idea what's going to happen next. You feel insecure and shaken. This letter, this letter is written to tell you, in this world, you will be shut out. And you will be shaken. But, in Christ, you will be set fast. You will be awakened to hope. Once again, Jesus pulls back the curtain to uncover the heavenly, the heavenly perspective on their current circumstances. He says, yes, in this world, you are shut out and shaken, but in Christ, there's a different perspective. In Christ, you are steadfast. You are solid. You're awakened to hope. Think about it, friends, how comforting for Christians who feel shaken to their core to hear Jesus say in verse 12, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall you go out of it. He's saying, I will make you steadfast and unshakable. How comforting for Christians who feel shut out by the powers that that be to hear Jesus say in verse 7, I hold the true key. Whatever I open, no one will shut, and whatever I shut, no one will open. How comforting for Christians who are being lied to and lied about to hear Jesus say in verse 7, these are the words of the holy and true one. does not lie. He says, you can trust my words. They're solid. Because these images are so wonderful, I'm going to go deeper on them in a second. But before I do, I just want want you to notice what Jesus is not saying. He does not say that you have to take power back for yourself. In fact, he says in verse 8, I know that you have but little power. Some translations say, because you have such little power, I will do it. I will open and close the doors for you. He does not draw them to their power, but to his. And I think this is so important because the temptation of the church when it feels shut out and shaken by the world is to grasp for worldly power in order to change things. And Jesus says, this is not the way. Cultural power is not the answer. Jesus commends them for keeping his word, for not denying his name, even though they don't have any power brothers and sisters, nowhere in this letter, nowhere in the New Testament, does Jesus urge his followers to fight back through cultural power, or to assert their rights. Instead, he invites us to share in his sufferings, to bear his reproach, to bear the reproach of Christ with him, to keep our eyes fixed on the joy that is set before us. He says worldly power is not the way, but heavenly power is. And Jesus uses these two images here to encourage us that he, in fact, holds all the power in heaven and earth. The images are of a key and of a pillar. First off, the key. Look at verse 7. To the angel in the church of Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What is this? What is the key of David? This is an allusion to Isaiah 22. There's a story there where a royal official named Shebna is said to hold the key of David. He was over the house of David, maybe like the prime minister of the house of David. And yet because of his pride, God stripped Shebna of his position, and he took away the key of David, and he gave it to another servant by the name of Eliakim. This is what Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two says. He says, and I will place on his shoulder, on Eliakim's shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open None shall shut, he shall shut, and none shall open. In this way, Eliakim becomes like a forerunner to Christ, who is the key of David to open the kingdom of God to all nations, to all peoples, to all tongues. See what he's saying in context? Jesus is comforting the church by saying, Even though you have little power, and the doorkeepers hold the keys and they shut you out of society or even the synagogue. I have taken the key away from them. I hold the most important key that opens the most important door in the history of the world into my kingdom. He says, Beloved, I have set before you an open door. And no one, absolutely no one, will be able to shut it. Whoever thinks they hold all the power and authority in this world is wrong. I have it. I hold the keys. The doors open and shut at my command. The is the world can shut you out of some doors, but they cannot shut you out of the door that matters most. Jesus is that door. Jesus is that key. His is the name that opens the door. And the second image is that of a pillar. Look at verse 12. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. <laughs> what he's saying is, so you, a, so you had a temporary stay in the synagogue before they threw you out. That's okay. I will give you an eternal stay in the temple of my God. I'll make you a pillar, you will never be shut out. But this, is, this is a bold claim this is saying that this small powerless ordinary church in Philadelphia is part of God's new temple it's saying the church is the temple of God not a building in Jerusalem made of stone but people who are the living stones and the pillars of the temple built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone the church is the true temple the true people of God, the place where God dwells. Calling them a pillar is another way of saying the words of Psalm 23, six, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how homeless you feel in this world, you will always be at home. You will always dwell in the house of the Lord. It doesn't matter how shaken you feel in this world, Even when trials and tests come your way, he will keep you. He will hold you fast. He will give you patient endurance. He will make you a pillar, steadfast and unshakable. It doesn't matter if you don't have the name that opens the doors here. You have the name that opens the door to God's presence forever. The very name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is placed on you at your baptism. You have a citizenship in the New Jerusalem. It is coming down out of heaven You have Jesus' own new name placed upon you By faith That you are in Christ Everything that is his Is now yours Because you have that name In Christ Brothers and sisters You only enter into God's eternal house Through Christ and through Christ alone Your good works cannot get you in Your worst works cannot shut you out The gospel, this good news, is that Jesus actually was shut out on the cross so that you could be let in. He took the crown of thorns so he could give you the crown of victory that can never be taken away. He took your name, that is your sins, your shame, your inheritance of death, so that he could give you his name, his perfect righteousness, his inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth. In this world, you will be shut out and shaken, but in Christ, you will be steadfast and awakened to hope. Lastly, what do I mean by that? To be awakened to hope? Well, if the door was open to you, then there is hope that it could be open for others as well, even those you might least expect. And therefore, that gives us hope. There's this cryptic end to verse nine, you you probably noticed it where Jesus says behold I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you now what does this mean because on the surface it sort of sounds like Jesus is saying I'm gonna make your enemies come and bow down to you in humiliation I don't think that's what it's saying I think the better translation is they're gonna come down and they're gonna come and bow down in repentance Because now they're going to see that you are, in fact, the people of God. They're going to see that God has, in fact, loved you. And they will bow down with you and join you in worship. Because this is hope. This gives hope that maybe even your enemies, maybe even the unlikeliest people, will enter by faith through the door of Christ and become fellow pillars with you in the temple of God. This gives us hope because we've seen the stories. Maybe you're one of those stories. One of the most unlikely converts in history of the world was the Apostle Paul. He tells his testimony in Philippians 3. He says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To be found in him, I'm not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, depends on faith. That I may know him power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, if you have entered by faith through the door of Christ, then anyone can. Anyone can. So what are the open doors that God has placed before you? What are your opportunities to share with others where, like Paul, you have found a righteousness this is not your own or you have found the surpassing worth of knowing Christ where you have gained something you would be willing to lose everything else for where you have found hope in sharing in his sufferings so you might also share in the power of his resurrection brothers and sisters, what are the open doors he has placed before you In this world, you will be shut out and shaken, but in Christ, you will be steadfast and awakened to hope. I titled this sermon, uh, The Philly Special, because <laughs> I couldn't resist. I try not to give too many sports illustrations, um, because I love sports, but not everybody does. But this one was too fitting. And hold on, Garnett's, I know, you're getting all excited back there about the Eagles again. So if you don't know what the Philly Special is, it's the name given to this Famous trick play. The Philadelphia Eagles ran against the New England Patriots in Super Bowl 52. Super Bowl winning play. Super Bowl winning play, thank you. <laughs> Which led, in my opinion, to one of the greatest upsets in the history of the Super Bowl. Top ten, at least. See, the Eagles were massive underdogs to the mighty Patriots. The Patriots had the best quarterback in NFL history. They had one of the greatest coaches. They just come off a, an amazing Super Bowl victory the previous year by coming down uh, from this massive comeback win over the Falcons, poor Atlanta fans. Now the Eagles had had a fine year, they had a great year, but they lost their starting quarterback to injury, and now they are attempting to beat the Patriots trying to win the Super Bowl with a backup quarterback, because they should have never won, but the Philly special was the play that changed the game. I want you to listen how it is described by NFL Films. You know, people like, you know, look back on the games and comment on them. This is what this is what NFL Films have said. This is a play that the Eagles had never run before. Run on fourth down by an undrafted ro- rookie running back, pitching the football to a third string tight end who had never attempted an NFL pass before, throwing to a backup quarterback who had never caught an NFL or college pass before on the biggest stage for football. It shouldn't have worked, but it did. Brothers and sisters, the church in Philadelphia, ancient Philadelphia, and the church today, it feels like we're massive underdogs as well. We have very little power. There's no way we should end up at the end of history with the victor's crown. We have a team full of third-string tight ends and backup quarterbacks. No offense. I'm one of them. No one expects us to win. The odds are against us. But I think the Philly special in this passage, it's kind of like Jesus' trick play to bring it all about. And it is so full of surprises that no one expects. Because we don't win by reclaiming cultural power, but by fixing our eyes on the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. We don't win by conquering our enemies, but by inviting them to worship with us, to bow the knee to King Jesus with us and learn that He loves you too. We don't win by becoming strong in ourselves, but by admitting weakness, letting God make us a pillar in His strength. We don't win by making a name for ourselves, but by receiving the name that is above all names, the one that opens all the right doors. We don't win by being a large, influential church but by being a small, faithful church with a big God. Brothers and sisters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we know what it's like to be shut out and shaken. to some level for our faith, we know what it's like to have Very feeble and shaky faith even today. But we ask you to pull back the curtain. To pull back the veil to uncover what the Lord is saying to us from heaven. Help us to see, Lord, that in Christ we are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, you hold the keys. and You have the ability to make us a pillar. So Lord, do so in our own lives. Thank you for the open door that has been open to us that will never be shut. Lord, help us to walk through that door by faith and to hold the door open for others. And invite them to come with us and see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.